Hello and welcome to another episode of Keep It Civil, the engineering podcast from UCL Civil, Environmental and Geomatic Engineering. And today we're going to be talking about earthquake search and rescue, and in particular um, after last year's Nepal earthquake. So you guys might remember that in 2015, Nepal was hit by a pretty devastating earthquake um, just outside the capital of Kathmandu in April. Then this was followed by a number of quite significant aftershocks. Four out of the seven world UNESCO World Heritage Sites in Kathmandu Valley were also badly affected. But it wasn't just restricted to the capital, Bhaktapur, which is another historic city in Nepal. About half the buildings there were completely destroyed by this earthquake. So today we're joined by Josh Makabuag, who's a research engineer here at UCL um, in the Centre for Urban Sustainability and Resilience. Hi, Josh. Hi, hi. So, Josh, you're a research engineer, and at the moment you're looking at tsunami and earthquake vulnerability of buildings as part of your research. Um, but you also volunteer for an organisation called SARAID, which is the Search and Rescue Assistance in Disasters. And it was with SARAID that you got deployed to Nepal following the earthquake in 2015. Can you tell us a bit about SARAID and how you got involved with them? Uh, yeah, sure. So my research is on structural engineering for earthquakes and tsunamis. Mm-hmm. And um, SARAID are, so that's Search and Rescue Assistance in Disasters. They're a, a charity that deals with international search and rescue. So they deploy to overseas earthquakes, uh, but also floods and other disasters. Right. Uh, they also deploy in the UK, um, such as the Somerset flooding um, a few years ago, etc., they also partner with uh, overseas emergency services and uh, charities, etc., mm-hmm. uh, to help build capacity for future disasters and that kind of thing. Uh, SARAID is a charity itself with no government funding, so it's all uh, publicly publicly funded. Right. And everybody involved is uh, they're all volunteers. There's a mixture of um, mixture of disciplines. So there's people from emergency services, from you know, uh, from the ambulance and the fire service and police. There's ex-military, mm-hmm. um, there's engineers like me, um, and then there's basically any other walk of life as well, from working in a shop to working in an office. You know, It's just all volunteers getting okay. involved. And my involvement started a few years ago, four years ago or so. Before starting my doctorate, I used to work in um, structural engineering, building design. Mm-hmm. I'm a chartered structural engineer. Um, I worked for five years in, in building design in the UK and other countries. And um, I knew about SARAID through a presentation that they did. And uh, I've always wanted to get involved, but at the same time, you know, I wanted to make sure that my engineering was up to scratch. Right. So once I became professionally qualified, once I got my chartership, then mm-hmm. I applied. And then it's a two-year training program, oh, wow. um, okay. uh, one weekend every month. Yeah. Um, and then at the end of that, you have a one-week-long assessment, um, along with the rest of the team, have an annual one-week-long uh, exercise. And at the end of that, they say yeah, that I, I was accepted and I joined. And then you continue that that training regime of one weekend a month, uh, ongoing. And then you just okay. got to be ready for deployment after that. Yeah. And so, um, how how did Sarraid help out in in Nepal? What was the situation like? Um, well, Nepal. So Nepal had a lot of fairly poorly constructed buildings. Um, so it was a mixture of bad materials, poor workmanship, non-engineered buildings is the key thing. So basically people just building willy-nilly, mm-hmm. um, especially in the kind of the, the, the city and town centres where you get fairly tall buildings, you know, mm-hmm. three, four, five storeys made of masonry, 
none of which is really designed properly. And as a result, you know, they had a lot of damage from the earthquake. It could have yeah. been much, much worse than it was um, had the epicenter been a bit closer to, to a city centre. And uh, that meant that, you know, you had a lot of casualties. You had a lot of people trapped and displaced. Um, Nepal, um, or Sarade's role in Nepal is obviously search and rescue. And the way that comes about is the country, so Nepal, put out a call for international assistance Mm -hmm. through something called um, the GDAX, the Global Disaster Alert and Coordination System. It's it's an EU thing, uh, UN thing, sorry. And um, they, um, they put out this call for assistance. And when that comes, that's basically our green light to go to the country. As soon as the earthquake happened, we were all put on standby. So all of the volunteers were put on standby and right. said, can you, can you make it, basically? And we say yes or no. And then we get ready. And then um, you know, a lot of the time, the disaster doesn't escalate to something that would require international assistance. Mm-hmm. Um, and in this case, it did. So it just meant that we, you know, we hopped on a plane. Um, I say hop on a plane. There's a lot of uh, a lot of logistics problems in terms of getting that, you know, getting 15 people and two tons of equipment to a disaster area. But um, the point is, you know, we jump on the plane, we get there, and then we begin the search and rescue exercises. So our general role is to look for trapped survivors in collapsed buildings, and we're primarily we're only looking for live casualties. So we're looking for people that are still alive in mm-hmm. the rubble. That doesn't extend to extracting um, bodies uh, or deceased people. In most cases, we're, we're, we're there to look for people that are still trapped. And so, what the, what's the like the makeup of the team that that Sarraid sent out? Like, you, you, you yourself are a structural engineer, but were there other structural engineers, people from sort of other other disciplines there as well? Yeah, so there's um, fifteen people on the team, uh, I believe. And that was that included one reporter, so he's not really a member of the the team. He mm-hmm. was just um, a cameraman that wanted okay. to cover the disaster and wanted to cover our involvement in it. And so he came along um, and funded himself to do so. But the rest of the team, yeah, you had two engineers, so me and another guy called uh, Mark Scorer, who works at Atkins, structural engineer. And then you have a team leader who uh, he's from the police um, in the UK. Um, you have a deputy team leader, and then you basically just have the rest of the the team made up of um, three medics in this case, and the rest and um, what we call technicians. But I mean, technicians are basically um, that's the the real crux of the search and rescue. Mm-hmm. So those are the people. Uh, I mean, we're all trained and we're all required to go into buildings, uh, um, et cetera, et cetera. But the yeah. technicians are the guys that are generally the first ones in and the one doing most of the main work. Basically. Yeah. Okay. What did the deployment consist of for you? Like, what was your role out there as a structural engineer? Well, the, the structural engineering role is um, basically to assess whether a building is safe. Uh, invariably, no. Otherwise, why would you be there? Mm-hmm. Um, and then how to make it safe uh, or safer so that we can enter the building. So what is the safest way to enter the building and uh, extract any or search for and extract casualties inside? So that basically involves considering um, the stability of the structure um, the load path, so what's holding up what, and um, the key supports, basically what can't you knock out or you know, or hit, and um, what's the safest way to enter the structure. Almost invariably, that will involve breaching. I we can't just walk into a building and pull someone out; otherwise, mm-hmm. they would have been pulled out long before we got there. People that are trapped are generally entombed within the structure, and that means basically breaching, so cutting through walls, cutting through doors, floors, so on and so forth. So the structural engineering role is really to make sure that that happens in the right places. Okay, and um, you're not cutting through any key columns or anything like that. Yeah, you're then looking for safe 
spaces for uh, evacuation. So if things were, if there was an aftershock, where do people go to, either within the structure or outside the structure? Um, also looking for external dangers, such as adjacent buildings that might collapse and so on and so forth. And then during the, the rescue or the search, we're basically looking for any changes of any of that because the whole thing is very fluid you know these buildings are very 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 unpredictable okay so you can't once you've checked one building once you can't assume it's going to be in the same state yeah your role is basically to to monitor to to assess the safety of the of the of the situation decide or advise what might be the safest way to to go the decision is ultimately with the the team or the section leader Mm -hmm. and they're the ones that are responsible for everyone that's inside um, and then to make sure that nothing uh, or or to assess whether things are changing. And how did the SARAID team fit in with other relief efforts around there? Were you guys just kind of focused on your own bit or given a section of the city to to go in and, and look at? Or Okay, yeah, that's a, that's a really important question because um, search and rescue is very much a team effort by the whole search and rescue community. So um, over the, the previous, uh, you know, the last years, um, you know, from Haiti and, and, and onwards and before, obviously, as well, mm-hmm. um, more countries are providing search and rescue assistance. Okay. Um, the effort is, in theory, organised um, or coordinated by the UN USAR, USAR is Urban Search and Rescue, the, the UN USAR coordination cell. Um, so you have a UN team that are in-country um, at what we would call the base of operations where all of the search and rescue or the majority of the search and rescue teams are meant to report. Okay. And they are then given taskings. Um, so basically told, right, okay, you go here, you go here, you're going to do this, you're going to report on this area. Um, and then all that information goes back to the base of operations, is collated and then used to strategize for the for the next the next day. Mm-hmm. Um, and w- when I say it's it's run by the UN, w- what I really mean is that um, it's not the UN's disaster. It's always the the country country's disaster. So it's the country the uh, the local emergency management authority basically just means whoever is in the country dealing with it at the time. Mm-hmm. In this in this case, it was the military. It's really their decision as to what happens where and when. The UN is there to advise and to collate all of the international teams and to send them out. So for SARAID, we arrived at the base of operations. We were one of the first teams there. I think we were the third um, team in the country or at the base of operations. And we were given taskings the, the next morning, which came from the military to say, right, search here, search there. Those taskings weren't particularly well organized. Um, they were basically just random locations. Mm-hmm. Check here, check here. Um, there was no real systematic you know, breaking down of the, the, the area into, into some kind of grid or giving people an area to, to cover. There was no real rationale behind the, um, the taskings that we were being given. Mm-hmm. So we assisted the UN in basically trying to collate the information, the scattered information that we did have available um, by the end of the first day to try and, again, strategize, take the map, break it down into different sectors. um, And then those sectors are then assigned to individual, well, to different teams. um, And then that team is then responsible for clearing that sector um, and that sector would be could be quite a large area of the city, which is, it was in our case. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's our responsibility to basically go to that area, look for all the collapsed buildings, um, search those collapsed buildings, or assess whether or not there's anybody alive in those collapsed buildings. They report that back, um, and then that's all collated. 
Okay, and did you have to go in and, and pull people out? And if, if so, like how did that then work with the wider kind of rescue efforts? Did you have you know an ambulance like following you along as far as it could? Or okay, there's no there's no ambulances. Uh, it depends on the disaster, obviously. Yeah. In Nepal, when you when the team gets to the country, um, one thing we have to find for ourselves is transportation and fuel. Mm-hmm. That's one thing that we can't fly with. Yeah, uh, we can't carry any fuel. And we get that transportation, and then we go into these these sectors. Um, if there is a likely live casualty in the in the structure, then we would be calling for emergency services and so on and so okay, forth. Okay, so it's a, it depends on whether or not there's anybody available. I mean, for example, in Nepal uh, and for example Haiti or something, you know, there's no capacity of the emergency services to be to be following around and mm. um, search and rescue teams on the yeah. off chance they find somebody or to even come when called. So the the way that we would uh, train to deal with casualties is the search and rescue team, everybody is trained in first aid to the extent of being able to stabilise a casualty enough to get them outside of the structure. Right, okay. And um, we have our team medics who are then able to further assess and stabilise the casualty enough to then pass them on to the emergency services and uh, we even in our base of operations we even have a tent for for the medic and um, for any casualties that aren't able to be passed on to to the hospital etc as well was this the the first time you got deployed with with SARAID yeah it was my first deployment SARAID's been around for 10 years um so they've been to various um different disasters you know 2004 tsunami um Haiti the uh, the big ones and lots of other smaller ones in between um, so there's lots of experienced people on the team, which is good because, say, for me and for quite a few members of this team that went to Nepal, it was our first time. Mm-hmm. And for me, it wasn't my first time in a disaster zone. You know, I've done building assessments and I've done post-disaster surveys, etc. But that's more in a kind of structural engineering or academic role, um, yeah. of, you know, of assessing and, and learning as opposed to you know actively looking for casualties and trying to pull them out. So it was the first time that I'd been in a disaster area, you know, one day after the um or two days after the um the event. Mm-hmm. And it was it was it was a it was a good experience. It was something that when you first arrive in the country, you know, I must admit that I kind of found myself a little bit not useless, but you know, we have clear things to be getting on with, but I guess you don't really have any context um until you've done it once or twice. So it's just a case of just follow the training, set up the base of operations, wait for instructions, go in the car, mm-hmm. go there, and so on and so forth. And then after the first couple of taskings, then you kind of get the idea of, or you know, you you get into the rhythm of uh, of what's happening, and you start to build a, a wider appreciation of the context that you're that you're working in. Mm-hmm. But I mean, our training is pretty good and it's pretty comprehensive, especially when you um, you know when you consider that we as a team train once a month one weekend every month you know that's that, that's that's a lot um yeah. for a volunteer team you know it's, it's more than many other teams would do so that means that we as a team know each other and trust each other and it means that we really you know we do have the training to deal with with all of these so it's just a case of just getting on with the job really uh, another you know another thing that's different from training mm. is the presence of uh locals basically so in training you know we we do it's all very theatrical, you know. We have casualties that are, or mock casualties in training that are course, you know, yeah. crying and screaming, and there's you know there's mock blood and all this kind of um, all this kind of stuff. And we have people that are pretending to be locals and trying to you know cause trouble and, and so on and so forth, um, or be helpful. And um, in this case, when we're in you know Nepal, what really struck me is the number of people that are 
scrutinizing your every action you know they're not they're not assessing you or anything but basically they just want to see if there is anybody alive in these mm. buildings and you know you're you're the international guy that's come to to help them find out if their their loved ones are still there so the biggest difference for me between training and um you know this 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 my first deployment was just having to block out the fact that in some cases there were hundreds of people surrounding a building that we were we were searching you know it's a oh, lot of, yeah it's a lot of pressure to add on to the pressure that you're already under and how long did the the sarage team stay out in nepal for um we were there for i think six days uh something like that mm-hmm. i was there for 10 days because um we deployed as a search and rescue team and then the government um then calls at some point calls an end to the, to the search and rescue mm-hmm. effort when they they don't feel that uh, there's anybody else left alive in the structure okay um and once that happens the teams then demobilize and go back to the country but there was also a call from the government to ask for structural engineers who might be able to um, conduct structural assessments of key buildings and in that case um when that when that call came then i i volunteered um and stayed on to um to do those do those assessments so uh, i think it was about five days of search and rescue and five days of, of building assessments okay and so that was more in line with the, the the things you said you'd done before, where you'd gone out to disaster zones, and we're looking at it more from a sort of structural engineering point of view. Yeah, that's right. The things I'd done before were with a team called EFIT, the Earthquake Engineering Field Investigation Team, which is from the Institution of Structural Engineers, and they go out to disasters and they look for basically look for lessons to be learned by the wider engineering community around mm-hmm. the world, um, so as to prevent these kind of disasters in the future. So. So I deployed to Japan uh, twice with um, with that team. Um, I'd also done other kind of independent research efforts um, in Nepal and and Peru after disasters as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but I've never um, so I've been I've been assessing buildings, yes, yeah. but for a very different purpose. You know, for the for this case, this was basically to decide whether or not the building was safe to continue using to be evacuated and made safe before it can be used or should be just um, completely abandoned and, okay. uh, and, and demolished. So again, it's a different focus. And, and again, it's a lot of it's a lot of responsibility for things like, you know, schools, hospitals, so on and so yeah, forth yeah, to, to say whether or not they're, they're safe or not. And did, did the experience in Nepal have an impact on, on like your research and how you've taken things forward? Um, well, my research, my, my research is a little different to, um, to this. I mean, my research is on generally engineered buildings um, mm-hmm. influenced by tsunamis on land. Um, whereas Nepal was, you know, purely earthquake um, non-engineered buildings generally, mm-hmm. so you've got your masonry, um, generally masonry structures that are collapsing in some concrete, etc. as well. But what it has done is um, it's really added to the, the drive and focus of the purpose of, uh, of the research. I mean, the, the group that I'm part of, Epicenter, the Earthquake and People Interaction Centre in, in the Civil Engineering Department, you know, they they specialise, we specialise on... And research devoted to earthquakes, to other disasters, in term, and that research is obviously aimed at having an impact on design standards, building standards, the quality of of the the safety and preparation of communities mm-hmm. to to these kind of disasters. Yeah. And you know, you see the need for that every time there is a disaster. You know, say every time because it's it's just, it's just ongoing. They're constantly there. And then being there firsthand um, and dealing with the response 
really brings home the need for improved mitigation and preparation and that's really what our group's doing so so yeah it's had a big impact on on my motivation and understanding why I'm doing what I'm doing why we're doing what we're doing well thanks very much for your time Josh and for talking to us about your experiences in Nepal um, you can listen to more episodes of Keep It Civil on our SoundCloud page, soundcloud.com slash underscore UCL, and uh, follow us on Twitter at underscore UCL to find out some of the more things we're doing within the department. Well, you can follow uh, Saraid on Twitter at team underscore Saraid and um, find out more about the work that they're doing. And I think Josh had a couple of things to say. Yeah, just wanted to add or reiterate that, you know, sorry, it is a is a charity. We have no government funding. Um, we're all volunteers and um, we rely completely on public donations. So um, if you if you are in, interested in uh, in helping out, remember that every penny goes towards um, saving lives. It's 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 all going towards our deployments and training for deployments. So if you could just visit the website, which is www.sarade.org.uk, um, and that's sarade, S-A-R-A-I-D.org.uk, uh, then um, then you can donate through the website and you'll be helping um, you'll be helping people around the world. Thanks. Cheers, Josh. And we'll put a link to the Sarade website in the show notes as well for anyone who wants to click through. But listen to us on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, whichever one you're using, and uh, leave us reviews and ratings because then it helps other people find the show as well. Thanks for listening. See you next time.